This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek is a partner at Madrona. Madrona is a seed, early stage, and acceleration stage investor investing for over 25 years in startups in the Pacific Northwest. Now investing across the U.S. in machine learning, AI, marketplaces, DevOps, biotech, and across the technology spectrum. In this episode, we discuss Vivek's investing career, which included stops at Goldman Sachs, Redpoint Ventures, Steadfast Capital, and now his focus on early stage investing at Madrona. Please enjoy my conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy. I'd really like to uh, start with your time at, uh, so you went to Ivy Business School at University of Western. And what was that experience like going to one of the better business schools in Canada and, and potentially the U.S.? Yeah, no, it's a, it, was a, it was a really good experience. Uh, so I was from Edmonton, as I, as I mentioned, born and raised, and I had a cousin who I'm still quite co- close with and actually lives in um, San Francisco, but it was a couple decades older than me, and he had gone to Western, and 
you know, when I was in high school, I was interested in uh, finance and business, not for the usual reasons that like I was trading stocks or my family was into it because they definitely weren't. My mom was in, was a teacher and my dad was a, you know, an IT guy. And, but I was in high school during the financial crisis. And I remember just watching the news with my dad, who was a big political junkie and, and watching 60 Minutes and all of this. And I was like, wow, this is a really fascinating world, which is kind of funny if you think about it, because, you know, this was what not to do uh, in, in, in finance. But if anything, I just remembered seeing, you know, the, the, how economics and markets and, and, and business was all coming together. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And so when I was talking to my family and I told my cousin, hey, I might be interested in doing business. He's like, okay, well, you definitely should go to Western. And I like that too, because I wanted to get out of the house. I didn't want to stay at home and, and go to the local university. I, I really wanted to leave the province and go somewhere else. And so Western was a great fit. And so I, you know, I, the way Ivy and Western was structured was that it's a two plus two program. So the first two years, you can kind of take any courses you want. And then the last two years, you're at Ivy. And so it was a lot of fun because in the first two years, I took a lot of history courses. I was really into, you know, history and American politics. I got to take really interesting electives uh, around my sort of standard business courses and then went to Ivy in the last two years, which was, you know, a really amazing experience. I think um, you basically get put in these sections. Uh, it was modeled after HBS and you get put in these sections where in your first year you were with 70 other people and you do all your courses together. Um, and you spend all day together. And I still remember that my first semester of my first year of Ivy was the most stressful, hardest I've ever worked intense because everyone is trying to land a summer internship from that semester. And, you know, I got pretty lucky. I was looking at doing investment banking, like a lot of other people were uh, at Ivy and, and ended up getting a few offers. And, um, you know, ended up getting an offer with Goldman Sachs and I had an offer between a few different cities, New York, Toronto and San Francisco. And I had always really wanted to come back to San Francisco. I'd visited when I was 17. Like I said, that same cousin actually was out here in, in, in SF at the time and wanted to be in the West Coast and, and really get more exposure to the tech and got this internship in 2012. And that was a really cool time to come out to uh, to Silicon Valley in the West Coast because Facebook had just gone public and there was uh, sort of this resurgence of of great and interesting tech companies that were around mobile, around cloud. Um, and there was a lot of really good momentum. And so uh, that was a really fun internship to do. Um, so I did, you know, eight or nine weeks uh, at Goldman, worked hard and you know, got exposure to some really interesting businesses and then came back for my last year at Ivy um, and then came to Goldman full-time in 2013. But I'd say the Ivy experience was was fantastic in a few ways. I, you know, one is it, it makes you and pushes you to work hard, to be with a new group of people you've never met before, find ways to work with them. You would do these 48-hour case studies. I still remember those. You're up for 48 hours and it's a crazy experience, but you finish it, you created some really fun bonds with the rest of your group. And, um, and yeah, I, I haven't had the chance to go back to London, Ontario in a few years, but it's my tenure actually this year. And so hopefully I can go back. So a lot of my friends still keep in touch with a lot of people from that, from that program. And, um, both here in SF, both in, in the West coast, East coast in Canada and everywhere. And, um, it was a really, really good experience. 
I love that. And then, so you do that internship with Goldman in SF. What team were you on? Were you on like the TMT team? Uh, and and why did you why did you choose that team? I know you mentioned you know interest in finance and Facebook that resurgence, but like what was really exciting? Yeah, so about it was the technology? TMT group uh, at uh, at the time and. For me, it was interesting because I had exposure to technology, not really through my family per se, but more just reading blogs, you know, reading TechCrunch when it was going, getting going and just starting to follow what was happening in this kind of mysterious Silicon Valley world. And you could get exposure to that as a finance grad, not through because we were I was working with these companies or anything, but more just following what was happening online, um, being on these sort of early Reddit threads and just, you know, feeling like, oh, there's this really cool thing happening in the West Coast right now and happening in Silicon Valley. Um, and you saw the explosion of Facebook and you saw the explosion of Dropbox and all these early cloud tools that were getting going. And I just felt like, would I rather do that or would I rather, you know, look at oil and gas companies in Toronto and, and mining companies in Toronto and, uh, you know, super hardcore financial businesses and, 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 you know, the fig businesses and the East Coast. And I think that was great for a lot of people. And honestly, I probably was not smart enough to even <laughs> do the models for those kinds of businesses. But I, I thought there was something really interesting happening with, um, you know, the, the IPO world in, in West Coast tech companies. And so I felt like when I had the opportunity to go to tech TMT in San Francisco, I wanted to jump on it. And, you know, even just the interview process, I remember flying out to San Francisco in uh, like March of that year that I got the internship in 2012 and it was frigid cold in London, Ontario, and you get on the plane and I landed in San Francisco and I'm like, wow, this is really nice. And the city has changed, you know, a, a little bit over the last 10 years, but I just remember the energy and the vitality and the weather and, you know, the people I met, it was just very exciting. And it was a younger group and I just really clicked with all the people I met. And it's interesting that Goldman Diaspora now has, has done pretty incredible things. You know, there's the CFO of Discord I worked with when I was at Goldman, uh, the CFO of DoorDash now, uh, and plenty of people who have gone into the venture business and people have gone into starting companies. And uh, a lot of them came from that 2012, 2013 Goldman TMT group. And so, um, so yeah, that was, that was a really fun ride and a uh, um, big reason why I joined. And ultimately, you move over to Redpoint, kind of jump into the venture side. Is that just kind of, you know, you're interested in technology, you've cut your teeth at Goldman, and you're kind of looking to switch things up, dive even deeper into tech. Like what made that move over to venture and maybe Redpoint yeah, so specifically? When you join Goldman as an analyst, most analysts will end up leaving Goldman, you know, and, and that's a that's a pretty known fact. And I think it, it continues to be the same way. You join out of undergrad, you learn these amazing business skills, financial modeling, how to write an email, how to interact with senior people, how to, you know, work with clients. If you get an opportunity to join these calls, all of that is a fantastic exposure to the business world. And I, I often compare like the two-year analyst program to like almost doing a two-year professional, uh, uh, you know, learning experience, right. Which is, it's almost like a finishing school, right. Where you go in and you learn, uh, all of these hard technical skills and a lot of soft business skills too. 
Um, but the majority of people who end up joining will leave. And so my analyst class, which was, I think, seven or eight of us at the time, maybe one or two people ended up staying on. And at the time, the majority of people who join investment banking, the goal is you get into private equity. It's private equity and hedge funds. That That's sort of... The, the standard path. And I remember even at Ivy, like at, uh, uh, you know, when we were all third years and didn't know anything, everyone was like, you're going to do two years of business, uh, two years, two years of, of investment banking, two years of private equity. Then you go to a business school and then you go to a hedge fund. It was like the first eight years of your life is mapped out. And this was before you even set a foot inside of an investment bank. So I just remember laughing about that now because so much changes, you know, you learn so much and you know, no one should follow that path unless they really want to, um, which is often some advice I give to, to folks coming out of, you know, university now. But um, so, you know, when I was looking, when I, when I joined banking, you start getting all these recruitment calls and especially from private equity funds. And I was like, look, I, I'm a few months in, I don't even know what I'm doing when it comes to banking. Like I need some more time to sort of figure this out and start to think about other things. But as I got more exposure to the private equity world and, and the hedge funds and even investment banking, I was like, you know what, maybe this isn't really what I'm interested in. When I was in banking, the things I was most interested in were doing the private placements, right? Working with early mid-stage companies in how they could raise money and uh, how they could kind of grow from a Series B, Series C company to the next level and then seeing that evolution until they became a public business. And I think that was really what kind of propelled me to think more about venture capital. And I had, a, you know, a, someone who I worked with uh, when I was a summer uh, intern at, at Goldman, Alex Clayton, who's still a friend and mentor of mine and now managing director at, at Meritech. And I remember Alex had just moved to Redpoint and I was still at Goldman. I didn't know anybody in VC. And I called Alex up and I'm like, hey, man, like, let's grab a coffee. I just want to learn what, what do you do like in venture capital? You know, I'm hearing about all these private equity funds, but it's not really interesting to me. And um, but this VC world seems pretty cool. Like, I'd love to talk to you about it. And at the time, VC wasn't, you know, they, they weren't hiring a lot of people. Right. It was still kind of a cottage industry. Um, it's certainly more so than it is today. And so Alex was kind enough to, to, you know, spend some time with me and he's like, I'm an associate. This is what we do. We try and find these companies here. Every VC is a little bit different. Here's our thesis and here's a kind of stage of businesses that we invest in and the kind of sectors that we are interested in at Redpoint. And I was like, oh, this sounds really cool. And just kind of got to know him. And he's like, hey, you should meet some more people here at, at the firm. You know, we, we might be thinking about bringing someone on. A year from now, you should talk to some more folks at Redpoint. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should. And then ended up, you know, slowly over the course of several months meeting uh, most of the team. And they're just terrific people and are terrific people. And um, it's, a, it's a really, you know, fantastic fund. And I actually spoke to a few other VCs as well. And I was like, no, this is the one that I want to, um, you know, I want to try and, you know, go into the process with. And uh, ended up joining Redpoint in the summer of 2015 and spent about five and a half years there. What was that experience like? Um, you know, we had I had Jason Warner on last season, and he's at Redpoint now, and they're very focused on kind of that infrastructure investing. Uh, today was that the same in 2015? Like, what was kind of your main focus yeah, when you were investing? It, a lot of it was the same, and you know, Redpoint had and has two funds: an early stage fund and a growth fund. The growth fund was sort of Series B through Series D focused. Um, and that was the fund that I joined and the team that I joined. Uh, and, 
you know, they had a lot of history and a lot of great history with uh, investing in in really terrific software companies. Back in 2015, that was a tr that was similar, but you know, it was a year after we had invested in Snowflake, and we had in within the first two or three years that I was there, uh, we made investments in HashiCorp and Sentinel One and um, some really amazing sort of iconic uh, software companies, both at the application layer and down in the infrastructure layer. So the five years that I spent there, I spent most of my time in software, um, both enterprise and infrastructure and developer tools, uh, as well as some FinTech and a little bit of healthcare tech. And what was cool about Redpoint and, and I think what was a really helpful experience was being a bit of a generalist when you start. So you can just learn the ropes of venture capital and, and, and better understand, you know, how do I evaluate a company, right? Like how do I go into a sector and evaluate what are the most interesting series A companies here? The most interesting series B companies, who are the competitors? What is the market landscape? What is it moving to? Like that is something that you could apply to any sector, right? Just those understanding those traits of, a great, what makes a great business? What makes a great market? And then going more uh, deeper into the areas that you're interested in. So when I was at Goldman, you know, we worked on the HP split up and I was working with uh, NetApp and SanDisk. And so we did some stuff at the sort of the semis layer all of the way to the application SaaS layer. And so I was always very interested in software. Um, and I think when I joined in 2015, there were other things that were very popular. Consumer was very popular at the time. And, you know, Instagram had obviously got bought and Snapchat was going public. And there's a lot of interest around consumer. But I, I really liked the fact that I could look at a bunch of companies across different sectors, but really double down on software. And that was an area that Redpoint had historically been very good at. And, you know, le learned from some amazing investors like Scott Rainey and, and Satish Dharmaraj and others. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was, that was the, the focus was software, um, but we did some fintech investments too. And, and, uh, you know, my partner, Elliot Guy made an investment in Newbank and, um, which was obviously very successful. And, and uh, so I got great exposure to great software companies, great infrastructure companies, fintech companies as well. And that was really where I spent the most of my time uh, ultimately until I joined Steadfast. What kind of skills did you need to unlearn and maybe learn from your investment banking days, making that transition to VC if there was any changes? Yeah, there were definitely done? changes. I think one of the big things that you learn as a VC and as a young VC is being able to hustle and build and develop networks. I think that's important no matter where you are, where you're investing, what stage you're investing in, being able to develop and create and um, sort of uh, maintain really strong networks with other VCs, with entrepreneurs, with future founders, with operators, was something that I had to learn. Because when I as an analyst at Goldman, you're not doing that, right? You're sitting in front of your terminal and you're grinding on models and you're building pitch decks and you're doing a lot of things where someone is telling you, go do this, right? You're getting a very clear set of instructions. There's a hierarchy, there's a managing director and there's a VP and there's a, um, you know, associate and you're kind of at the, you know, at the bottom of the food chain. Uh, you're learning a lot, but you're, you're really doing and executing on work. And I think that is helpful when you get to, especially if you're doing early growth or growth VC, where you have to learn how to do and read financial statements and understand a company's financial models. 
I think that's all, you know, that, that, that's good training ground and, and learning how to be very crisp and precise on, uh, you know, on, on, on emails and communication and all that. But this whole idea of going out and, and trying to like, you know, meet entrepreneurs and, 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 and meet founders, it's a kind of a foreign concept if you're not coming from the world of tech. And I didn't know what the inside of a business looked or looked like, right? I had worked at Goldman Sachs, but I didn't know what a startup was. And uh, you learn all these things, right? And I think a big way that you get good at that is you just reach out and speak to as many companies as you can and as many founders that will give you time. Um, and, you know, obviously you're not going to, you may not find all your investments in the first 50 or 100 or 200 companies you speak with, but it gives you the ability to one, develop empathy for what a founder is doing and how founders build companies and how early startup employees and operators execute and execute on a business. You learn the guts of a company uh, and you learn what makes really good businesses and what drives founders. And I think as someone who came from the banking side and not coming from the startup side, developing that empathy and developing that muscle is really important. And so that was a that was a big part of my learning when I was at Redpoint was the first couple of years. I was just spending a lot of time meeting as many companies as I can, reaching out to them, cold outreach, warm outreach, develop your network. And I think, you know, seven-ish years later in venture, a lot of the skill continues to help and continues to, um, you know, you see the fruits of that labor uh, come in, kick in years later. Ultimately, you move over to Steadfast, which I'm not super familiar with, but they're a hedge fund and you helped launch their VC arm. Was it a separate fund? Yeah. And so what was that experience I, I had like? spent about five and a half years at, at Redpoint and, you know, learned a lot and worked with some amazing folks there and um, had a great experience. I was an associate and left as a principal. Um, but I was sort of itching to do something new. And I think this was also the summer of the pandemic and a lot of people were making moves and, you know, figuring out like, hey, you know, is this is this what I want to do for the rest of my career? I think for sure venture was something I wanted to do, but maybe in a slightly different lens. And this opportunity came along um, with my partner, Karan Mahendru, who I you know, continue to work with at Madrona, but Karan had just left Trinity Ventures and was looking to um, start a venture practice at this large hedge fund called Steadfast. And, you know, he was like, hey, would you want to come over and do this with me? We'll, we'll, we'll kind of bring this thing, you know, build this thing from the ground up. And I thought it was a really interesting, exciting opportunity because we were seeing a lot of crossover activity happening in the venture world, right? Especially in growth where a lot of the large uh, hedge funds have been moving into the private space and some have done it extraordinarily well and, you know, KOTU and Altimeter and, and, and Tiger and, you know, you hear all these names that were certainly very active in the last few years. And Steadfast had, had you know, was an East Coast firm, uh, was a $10 billion fund, had never really done privates in a very formal capacity. And um, myself and Karan and, and one other person, the three of us sort of uh, helped, you know, um, you know, pull that together uh, at the end of 2020. And it was a really fun experience because for the first year and change, we did about 14, 15 investments. You know, we invested in some really fantastic businesses, Zapier, Lucid Software, Outreach, Cohesity, Forethought, you know, some 
some terrific companies. Uh, and the idea was, you know, spend the first year just getting on cap tables and making investments and showing that we could make investments because it was a crazy year for the venture industry. It's very competitive markets. Nobody knew who Steadfast was, right? Like that was not a name that founders knew in the in the venture world, certainly, right? It was a hedge fund and long short fund and, you know, fairly under the radar. Um, so I think it was a really good exercise in learning how to really leverage your networks. And so, you know, both Gran and I went out and we made investments in Canadian companies like Walt Simple too. And, you know, just um, finding ways to hustle and to leverage our personal relationships or professional relationships, um, relationships we had with board members, with founders, with companies to be able to say like, hey, we're this large crossover entity, but we're, you know, we're, 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 flexible capital and, you know, you know us and you're ultimately wanting to um, bring us to, to, to the boardroom or, or at least invest in, in your company um, on the backs of what we can provide as opposed to um, steadfast, right? And so I think that was a really great way to do a lot of investments, get to know a lot of founders and a lot of boards in a very, you know, short period of time. And ultimately, you know, that we wanted to have a separate fund within because right now we were investing out of the hedge fund and the market started to turn and shift in in early 2022 late 21 early 22 and it kind of got to the point where it wasn't going to be uh on the short or or near-term roadmap for steadfast to raise a dedicated private venture fund and we could continue investing out of the public vehicle but we decided like you know what i think it's the right time to join uh, a venture platform because we had been talking to some other VCs and they were, especially early stage VCs that were looking to um, sort of build up their their growth, their early growth muscles. And Madrona was one that we had been speaking with and the opportunity was just really uh, solid. And I think the timing and the, the, the fit was really good to come on board and join them uh, last year. And Madrona, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Seattle-based firm, Pacific Northwest, uh, really notable for investing in Amazon. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Did you kind of join to increase their exposure to the Bay Area, San Francisco? How did that work? Because I know that they're historically. That's been right. In yeah. Seattle. So Madrona has a, has a really interesting and rich history. Um, you know, been around for uh, twenty seven years. Um, you know, one of the founders of Madrona, Paul Goodrich, is still you know very involved, which is. Amazing to have that kind of longevity at, at, at any fund. And um, Madrona is, yeah, one of the more famous things about Madrona is that uh, one of the first investors in Amazon. So um, one of our founders, uh, Tom Alberg, wrote one of the very first earliest checks to Jeff Bezos in, I think, 95, 96, something in that time frame, which was, uh, I think, one of the first outside investments he ever received. So incredible for, you know, uh, to, to, to get that one from day one, one of the, the, the largest companies in history. Um, but yeah, historically, Madrona had been headquartered in Seattle, uh, had a terrific reputation of being a, a very good early stage firm in the Pacific Northwest. And then I'd say over the last five or six years, uh, the fund and, and, a, and a few of the MDs in the fund have been uh, more deliberate about investing in companies not only outside of Seattle, but also more at the Series B, Series C, sort of that early growth and growth uh, uh, stage. And, you know, one of those companies, for example, was Snowflake, which my partner, Soma Soma Segar, he invested 
in Snowflake through a connection he had from his, you know, several decades at Microsoft. And it turned out that a lot of the connections that Madrona had very strong relationships with the Microsoft ecosystem and Amazon ecosystem was really applicable to companies everywhere, right? Not just in Seattle, but also uh, in in the West Coast and in the Bay Area and and really everywhere. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the firm had made several investments and started to make more investments outside of the Pacific Northwest while keeping the Pacific Northwest and Seattle as its, as its kind of core strategy. And so when, you know, Karan and I uh, came on board last year, it was really great timing because they'd been thinking about expanding and launching a new office and Karan and I, uh, you know, all of our networks and, and, and our relationships and the companies that we tend to work with are very much, you know, in the Bay Area and beyond. But, but um, you know, we're both here. And so it was great. We were able to open up an office, the first sort of Silicon Valley, California office uh, for Madrona in, uh, you know, the, the, the fall of last year. And so the way we're sort of organized right now is headquartered still in Seattle. And that's a very key focus. And we're never not going to focus on Seattle. And, you know, every I think every or most founders in the Pacific Northwest will know Madrona and certainly our job to make sure that that remains the case. But in areas that we know, and that's application and infrastructure software, developer tools, uh, AI and ML, you know, these areas that we have a lot of deep expertise in and, and relationships with large ecosystems and the hyperscalers and um, partnerships that we've developed over many decades, all of those are things that we can bring to bear when we invest in companies in Seattle, outside of Seattle, you know, Bay Area, New York, we've made an investment in your, I think the last five or six investments we've made, two were Bay Area, one was New York City, one was LA. And I think part of it also that coming out of the pandemic, the where you are just matters a lot less, right? Like, you know, we're doing this podcast, you're in Calgary, I'm over here. Um, increasingly, it, it, it's less about location. Now, I do think that for certain stages of companies and in, in company formation, location definitely helps. But I think for us, a lot of the investments we make and will continue to make, we will be anywhere, wherever there's great founders in the areas and domains that we know and that we think we can be needle moving and the founders think we can be needle moving. And, and you know, we want to find those and fund those. How has that kind of been, you know, you can be anywhere. How has that kind of changed dynamics for a venture fund as, you know, it's it's a competitive space. There's a lot of VCs in the US and like looking globally as well. So how do you like really strengthen that network that maybe used to be, you know, in a few block radius or a few kilometer mile radius, and now it's nationwide? How do you kind of grow that network, maintain it and uh, uncover yeah, new a lot, opportunities? A lot of Zooms, <laughs> a lot of Zooms and a lot of travel. So I, I say this somewhat, you know, jokingly, but uh, when I was at Redpoint and we were, you know, we were kind of coming up, like you would form your, your networks with a lot of the people that are around you, right? Like everyone was on Sand Hill road at the time and you can just go get coffee somewhere and, and you meet a lot of folks that way. And then as those networks disperse to other locations, what I find is you end up just staying on touch in asynchronously, right? Like on, uh, you know, uh, we text each other all the time. We're on different messaging apps. We're communicating in other ways. And I think the biggest thing is just continuing to keep those ties going right and so we'll make a trip to new york every you know quarter we'll make a trip to la if we need to we'll make a trip to austin you know those things will continue to happen and i think 
the most important part is you can stay in touch asynchronously. You find some of the ways you make sure you do calls. You have these periodic check-ins. You do all those things. And then you want to create some reason to get together, right? And so, you know, we'll throw happy hours in Seattle and San Francisco. We'll throw events um, to bring people together. And I find a lot of these are both in person and virtually, right? And so, I think it, it is really incumbent on you and, and as, as, a, as an investor, certainly, for us to make sure that we are keeping these relationships warm and we are doing the work to make sure that we're as helpful to others as they are helpful to us. And I think, I, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard to answer this question because there's so many different things that we have to do. And the main thing is you just have to be doing them. And so being on Twitter, being, you know, uh, present on media, making sure you're publishing content, making sure you're consuming content. Like there are so many ways and now so many conferences are coming back uh, into town and just making sure that you're on top of the ones that you need to be is super important. When you're making investments, what kind of things are you looking at, you know, in individually, like you have a background from Goldman finance background. So you're looking more for like business models or spaces, and then you're finding the best business based off financials, or are you a bit more founder focused and mix the two? Yeah, What's kind it's of a good question. I'd say it's a mix. It's obviously a mix of all of those, but but where I tend to spend most of my time is um, in what we call our acceleration fund strategy, which is really more series B, series C stage companies. And that's, that's historically been my focus, um, you know, over the last seven years. And so for companies at that stage, it tends to be post product market fit. So the risk you're taking when you invest in these companies is less so on the product. Now that, and, and generally I, I spend most of my time in, in software and, and uh, AIML. And so these are generally companies that have developed a product, right? And they've put it out in the open. So it's no longer the technical risk of, is this product going to work? Now you may take a, uh, some risk on like, is product number two, three, four, five is going to work, but they have a product that's out there. They've hit some level of product market fit where users are saying, we like this, we're using it and they're starting to get some early customers. So they might be, you know, a little bit of revenue under a million of, of, of ARR, call it up to five, 10, 15 million of ARR. That's really the sweet spots that we plan. So that tends to be, there's still a, a high degree of focus on the, on the founder and certainly the market. But what we're really trying to do is figure out who are the leaders in this space or who are the future leaders in these spaces, right? What are the companies that we're taking a bet on a company that's one, two, three million of ARR, five million of ARR. How are they going to get to 50? How are they going to get to 100 and grow past that, right? And and obviously, you're never going to know for certain or else this job would be a lot easier. But you have to be able to synthesize a lot of information. That's financial information. That's market information. That's reading the founder. That's having deep expertise on the domain and having deep knowledge and understanding of all the companies in the space to figure out, okay, is this the one that we think is going to take the, be the winner or could have the chance to be the winner? And I think that can come through a number of different ways, but you know, once you've sort of gone past that product market fit level, that's where we spend the majority of our time. Now I have a lot of my colleagues here um, who are very focused on super early stage companies. And so they're meeting folks that are coming out of Stanford or UW that are not even founders yet. Right. And they're, they're ideating with them on, Hey, you're, you, you know, you wrote an amazing paper on foundation models. Let's chat. Uh, you know, let's think about what a cool business could look like or a cool product could look like. And so at Madrona, the, the, the nice thing is, is you get exposure to all of that. 
And so we can take a lot of the learnings of what are the new and interesting and novel technologies that are coming out of labs today or out of, you know, research facilities or coming out of the, the minds of these really amazing people that we work with and, and want to get to know. And then also on the other end of the spectrum, the companies like the snowflakes of the world when we invested or now the CODAs that are really just building amazing go-to-market machinery and scaling revenue and now have that great combination of a really terrific product combined with really amazing world-class go-to-markets. That's how you build a, a world-class business. So I'm assuming here, but with that early stage, you know, definitely very focused on, on the founder and the space they're going after and the stage you're at, kind of maybe playing to more of that kind of Goldman strength of, you know, research, maybe talking to customers. I feel like there's a lot more data. There's a lot more people you could talk to that are not just the founder to get a better sense of the business or those kind of skills that, you know, kind of a later stage or growth stage investor has over yeah, maybe I think an that earlier tends stage. to be more later stage, really, because, you know, we're not looking at we're never going to make the investment based on the spreadsheet. Right. Like when we're investing in these companies, they're still very early. And so it's not like we're we're doing this intense, intense spreadsheet modeling like you are if you're looking at a you know, a 20, 50 million ARR plus company, or you're doing more mid to late stage investing, we're still doing early growth investing, right? And so these are companies that have, you know, have, have proven that they can get to some level of customers and they're showing they have some users and, you know, you, you have to obviously know how to, you know, you have to know your way around an income statement model or, or do the basics of understanding what's net retention. And, um, you know, what, what is the churn gonna look like in modeling out future scenarios? But at the end of the day, this is still very much a bet on the founder, the market, understanding the competitive landscape. It's all these other things, understanding the product and where the product could go and who are the ones that are coming after this product and, and the technologies that could try and disrupt them. And so I think you, you build a lot of these skills over time looking at early and early growth businesses. And I certainly do think that, you know, being a Goldman and, and having some structured way of looking at companies is helpful. But I'd say my time at Redpoint was far more valuable in finding customers and, and, and hustling to find um, folks that we should talk to and doing as much of the diligence and analysis as we can to get comfortable with the risks. But ultimately, you're still taking risk, right? You are a venture investor. It's never going to be 100% for certain. And so you have to be able to take that bet at the end of the day with and make that investment and 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 figure out a way to 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 uh become partners with that founder and with that company and i think a lot of that comes from just more reps and learning from great you know vcs who have been around for a long time while also developing your own lens and developing your own way and your own ability to connect with founders and find ways to be useful to them um, you know as a as a young person coming up in venture and so uh so yeah to, you know i think there's there's some financial skills, but I think that the really, you know, hardcore spreadsheet modeling that's happening at a later phase. We're, we're looking at a different set of factors and analysis when we go to make an investment. What's been your most, most recent interesting investment that you've done that you can public, so publicly talk about? So we just invested uh, in, this is public, in a company called DeepGram. And what they do is they uh, provide speech recognition technology, uh, audio and speech recognition, which is uh, ASR technology uh, available through an API. And so think of it as like, it's a developer tool where if you are a, uh, a another company, you're a call center, you're any kind of business that would love to be able to 
do transcription in real time, you would want to use something like DeepGram. And what's really cool about what DeepGram does is, you know, as especially in this world of, of AI, where increasingly voice is becoming a more and more important part of the overall stack. And a lot of what we're doing right now, you can see we're, we're, we're talking to each other. That's a lot of amazing unstructured data that's being captured within voice. DeepGram can capture all of that. They make it really easy for you as a developer at one of these companies to bake ASR into your own products and do the transcription, do things like diarization, so you know which speaker is talking and when. You can do accent detection. You can do really interesting things around making it very easy to understand who's speaking and who's not. And like you think about a conference call where eight people are are, are chiming in at different times and people are speaking over each other. There's a lot of interesting content that's being captured, or I should say there's a lot of interesting content that's happening and but just isn't being captured in a systematic way. And DeepGram can help do that. And I think, you know, what one of the things that got really excited us about it was, you know, it's a well-growing product, the very smart founder who knows his space deeply and um, really interesting product, but we're just seeing so much, so many new business cases that we never even really thought about a few years ago that is happening around things like generative AI that require great audio and speech recognition and speaker recognition tools. And that was, uh, you know, a major reason why we invested in DeepGram. And so we, we uh, let a Series B extension in the, in the uh, company, and that was, um, you know, just about a few months ago. With generative AI, it's definitely a hot topic now. Um, maybe that, that hotness can create a bit of FOMO, like if you kind of like a crypto or any other kind of space that kind of just is taking off. So how do you, if you know, if you have that interest in AI and want to invest in that space, how do you cut through that noise, kind of stand alone and find that kind of contrarian view in a space that's kind of taking over Yeah, it's over a great everything? question. And, and, you know, generative AI, it's funny, like how broad it's become. And I, so my uh, partner, Sabrina Wu and I uh, write a Substack called Aspiring for Intelligence, if I can quickly plug it, uh, which where we, you know, every two weeks we talk about what we're seeing in this world of what we call intelligent apps, right? And intelligent apps is is any application, both, you know, really at that end user level down to the infrastructure uh, and sort of deep tech layer that is baking in or using artificial intelligence in some interesting way. And Recently, we talked about how NFX has done this market mapping where now there's 500 companies just in the last few months that call themselves generative apps and generative AI. So I think this is, there is a hype cycle, but I think it's very different from crypto in that, and I never really spent much time in crypto before, but uh, I don't think it's the same parallels in terms of hype cycle because there are a lot of real and tangible use cases that's happening in the world of generative AI. And I think that the way we look at it is you can split it into a few different levels. There's the, there's the end user application. So that's like something like a Jasper AI, right? Um, that is something that as you and I, as a user, if we want to go on a browser app and start trying to do copywriting or having AI help us do that, you can go into a, a tool like that. Then we have this sort of middleware tooling layer, which are uh, products and tooling selling to developers often that help build and create new AI and machine learning companies. And at, at 
Madrona, we've been investing in the space broadly for a decade now um, and investing in companies like OctoML, for example, which helps you deploy machine learning uh, models into production. Um, and then you have at the base layer the actual foundation models themselves. So this is like GPT and Dolly and, and, and Stable Diffusion. And as we look at the landscape, we do think that there's interesting opportunities at each of these layers, but the modes are very different, right? And so at the end user app layer, when we're looking at these products, we have to really think about if you're just building on top of a third party FM, like you're just building on top of GPD, or you know, you're just building on stable diffusion, you don't have anything in terms of proprietary models or proprietary data that you have access to or working on, that's pretty tough to defend in the long term, right? Because there are going to be competitors that come after that and you won't have enough differentiation besides maybe the user experience to be able to really show why you can create a very big business. That's different at the very deep tech, you know, FM layers where the the quality of the model and the ability for the model to take all the parameters that they can ingest and all this kind of data that they can ingest and actually produce real results and make it easy for you as an application to sit on top of is far more interesting and is far more defensive uh, uh, than it is at the app layer. So basically the way we look at it is we try and take a systematic approach where each of these layers, there's going to be interesting companies being built and we're seeing more and more and more every day, but we have to be able to think about what are the moats, right? And the moats are going to change at each of these layers. And so one of the things that we really go back to is like we invested in Runway ML, for example, amazing product, got a lot of really interesting and, and, and fantastic user adoption out of the gates. Um, and, you know, as we look at more companies that look like Runway or, or others, it's how much of their IP can they, you know, can, have they built themselves or how much of the training of the models can they do themselves? Or is there proprietary data that they have access to that they can fine tune that others can't? And so I think we're seeing a hype cycle certainly right now. There's a lot of companies right now. I, I think in a year from now. Uh, we may not see as many of these companies anymore. And if you remember six, seven, eight years ago, there was a market map of of marketing tech, marketing SaaS companies that was 600. And, you know, you ultimately find there's five or six winners, right? And I think that same thing is going to happen in generative apps. I think the winners are going to be very, very, very large. You're already seeing this with OpenAI and others. Um, but as we look at each layer of the stack, we are very, we're trying to be very thoughtful about where the modes and where the leader is going to come from, and let's invest behind those products. I'm definitely going to have to subscribe Thank to you. your your newsletter there. I, I guess when I when I heard you talking there, it's you know you're always learning kind of maybe new new businesses, new business models, new spaces. I guess is that something that as a VC that you always have to maintain? You have to be learning about these new spaces, understanding new things that are like super cutting edge. And how do you how do you do that? Is it just reading? learning or do you have any kind of tactics yeah, absolutely. that help with I that? think that, uh, you know, some of the people who I've learned from the most in VC are, will always say you constantly have to be learning and you constantly have to be on your edge because technology doesn't stop. Technology is always moving forward and there's always going to be something new 
that you have to learn about. And I tell a lot of people, I, I'm super lucky to have landed in this role. I feel like it's one of the best jobs in the world because I am learning every day, right? I'm not a comp, I'm not a comp sci major. You know, I didn't come from an engineering background. I came from a finance background. Um, and you have to, A, spend a lot of your time in this job making sure you're staying on top of the latest trends. And so, you know, as we learn about generative AI and foundation models, one, there's people internally within Madrona who know a lot more than I do about these uh, subjects and have worked with these products at places like Amazon and Microsoft that I can I can learn from and talk to. And just, you know, we, we spend an hour every day chatting about these products and these tools. And I'm also speaking with founders about it. And there's so much available content and uh, online that you can go read these papers, right? Which is, which is great and spend some time on a weekend just really going deep in these areas. And so I, I do think that staying on top of these industries is really important. And, and I think at some point you want to have your swim lanes that you understand well, right? Which is you might decide to really look deep in an application SaaS, or you might look really deeply into infrastructure, or you might look really deeply into consumer internet or marketplace. It's like, I think you want to have some depth in areas for sure, because that's how you're going to really figure out what are the best companies to go after? What are the best founders? How do I evaluate products and markets in a very fast um, and, and, and efficient way? That's only if you really understand and can go deep in those areas. But at the same time, you have to know what else is happening, right? Because things come out of nowhere. I mean, AI, it's sort of like we talk about generative apps. Obviously, artificial intelligence has been around for decades and it's seeing a resurgence in interest. And so I think unless you have come in with the classic Excel version of a prepared mind, it's going to be hard for you to evaluate these in a time period that's fast enough to be able to make an investment. So there's almost, you have to create two layers of it, right? One is understanding these industries and going deep on them. And the second is our job is to invest in great companies and support them and make returns for our LPs. And you have to be doing both things and you have to do both things well. And so I think having that prepared mind is super, super helpful and important to do the second part. I love that. I love to switch gears into the quick fire round. Um, and the first question would be, what's your favorite book that you've ever read? Uh, and if you're not a book person, maybe it could be a movie, podcast, yeah, whatever so you like. So I know I love I love reading. And it's funny, I, I have a, a, a few books that often come to mind whenever I think of like best book I've ever read. But one of the most interesting books I've ever read was The Stranger uh, by uh, Camus. And I'd always, you know, been interested in philosophy and, and existentialism. And the book is so well written. And for anyone, you know, it's a it's an easy read. And Camus is an amazing, you know, uh, French author from the fifties. And he writes in such interesting prose. And it's just a book that the characters have stayed with me, and the the plot and Anytime you just want a, 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 something that you can read in a few days, uh, I, I always enjoy that book and there's always something new I learn from it. Um, on the nonfiction side, which I, I, I like to read a lot of nonfiction, uh, there's a, a, a book called The Anarchy and it's about the East India Company and how are they formed in the, the you know, late 1400s and 1500s to becoming the largest company of its time by the 18th century. And it's such a fascinating book because it combines a lot of things that I'm interested in, which is history, business, politics, economics. And at its time, 
the East India Company was the size of, you know, Apple plus Amazon plus, you know, plus Meta and all of these rolled into one, it was that business, right? It was just so massive and eventually led to the British Raj, which was the, uh, the, the, the colonizers of India. And uh, I think it's just such a fascinating and well-written book. And I always learn something every time I go back to it. I'm going to add those to my reading list tonight. Um, what are you most excited about for 2023, whether that's personal and or Yeah, I think, you know, look, this will be the first full year I have at Madrona. And I joined, you know, in uh, mid-October of last year. And I felt like the, the last few months of the year was great. Um, to just do the learning and get to know everybody and 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 uh, do all the basics and I really feel like the exciting part of this year is now we've got you know a fresh set of funds and we are um, looking to really move aggressively in this environment and uh, I think there's a lot of interesting spaces and great companies coming up and um, you know now is the time to find great businesses and you know we're not slowing down dramatically because of a downturn or anything and I I, I feel like it's going to be a very exciting year to find and fund and, and help build great companies with founders that, that we invest behind. Uh, that's on the professional side. Um, on the personal side, you know, I, I, uh, my, my girlfriend and I love traveling. Uh, we, you know, given our age, a lot of weddings coming up and I'll be coming back to Edmonton. Uh, we'll be coming to Edmonton, which will be fun first time in, in, in a long time going back. And then, you know, we try and do one big international trip a year. And, um, so that, that's going to be a lot of fun. And my parents 40th anniversary is coming up in, in the summer. So it's going to be exciting, exciting time for them and us as a family. That's awesome. And then final question before I open the floor up to you, but, uh, how do you deal with hard times? You've worked at some, some intense environments back as a background and, um, have you developed any tactics or tools to help yeah, with challenging I think you need times? Yeah, both a outlet and that could be a hobby, that could be, you know, a number of things, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about mine, but like, I think you need an outlet and you need a good support group, whether that's, you know, girlfriend, significant other, friends, family. It is very hard to do this job and to do any job alone, right? And you will go through hard times, personally and professionally. Everybody goes through hard times. And having that support group is so important. And I'm very lucky to have you know, family that I'm close with and, you know, and, and my girlfriend and um, terrific groups of friends uh, in the Bay Area that, you know, those relationships compound over time, right? And, and it is so important to be able to go back to that and, and you know, have them as a resource and, and you can be a resource to them as well. And I think that's important in times of distress and times of happiness just having that support group is really important. And then having an outlet, right? So for me, it, it's, I love outdoor running and I love, um, you know, going to CrossFit and I love reading. And, and, you know, I think just having hobbies that are outside of your work that you take you outside of your work too. Right. And, you know, even for, from when I'm like reading books, I, I love to just read about topics I have no idea about, right. And have nothing to do with finance or tech. And I'm reading about, um, song of the cell by Mukherjee right now. And I can barely pass 10th grade biology, but it's such a fascinating topic. And I think, you know, it, it's fun for me to, to sort of, uh, um, you know, to, to, to use reading and to use podcasts like yours and others as a way to, to expand my breadth of knowledge and just, um, you know, and also to get outside of your head from work. So I think having an outlet and having a support group are, are really important. Great advice. 
And before we wrap it up, would love just to open the floor up to you to talk about anything, how people can get in touch with you, learn more about yeah, Madrona, absolutely. whatever Look, that may be. Anybody can get in touch with me. I'm at Vivek at Madrona.com. Um, please, you know, reach out if you're building a company, if you're an operator, uh, you know, if you just want to learn more about venture capital, I'd love always love to, to chat with folks and impart whatever knowledge I have, which is minimal, but, uh, <laughs> happy to chat with people. I'm at Vivek Ramaswamy on Twitter and we have this, uh, sub stack aspiring for intelligence that we're writing about, but, um, you know, I, I, I've learned, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm aware of, and I'm very grateful for is I've had so many people who have helped me through my career, mentors, friends, um, people I've worked with, people outside of the industry, people inside of the industry who have given me chances and leg ups and, you know, just just been kind to me and given me time when I absolutely didn't deserve it. And so I'm so lucky to have that. And I think the best way you can uh, return that favor to those people is by passing it on to others. So to the degree that that anyone ever wants to chat, please let me know. I love that. And appreciate the time. It was so fun to learn about your journey from Edmonton to VC in the Bay Area. That's amazing uh, conversation. And thank you so appreciate much. The time today. Congrats to you, Evan, on, on, you know, building this and getting the season three and getting some amazing guests on of which, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm probably the least important and accomplished, but, but uh, terrific group. And I'm, I'm glad for what you're doing with Canadian, um, you know, Canadian folks and, and, and sort of shining the spotlight on people. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.